Um, before we start, could you just please bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? <clears throat> Father, as we approach difficult topics that are somewhat forced upon us by our culture, we trust very much in your mighty hand to guide us uh, through the forest that we feel we're sometimes in. And pray, Father, that the, the attitudes and the motivation of your holy word would be something that would really resonate deep in our hearts as we interact with the world around us, because it's not just the words that we say, but it's how we say and the, the attitudes and the atmosphere in which we engage them that can be really all important in leaving a truly Christian mark on a conversation or uh, just leave it as a, as a um, somewhat of a contentious topic that we might have discussed with other people. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would be in the talk and in the motivations behind the questions and pray, Father, that we would learn together uh, to be better suited to make a case for your cause in the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the, the title of the, uh, today's forum, as was given to me, was The Door to the Kingdom, Why One Way? And uh, I decided later to give uh, uh, another little extra addendum to it by calling it a politically incorrect salvation, um, because I think we need to get used to that idea that that's exactly what it is. Okay, the things that we hold dear in our day and age are going to be viewed as politically incorrect. Um, I think we need to get comfortable with that idea more and more and uh, be somewhat uh, wise about you know, how one can interact with a world that fundamentally wants to reject um, the basis for our lives. I think it's important to remember, too, that of course, not everyone out there is going to reject it. There's still going to be some that won't. So I, I just wanted to take a minute here to, um, for those of you that may or may not know me, to just tell you a few things about me. I have a family that God's given me, a dog, a car, a house. He's my family. Love them. My dog. It's when he was little. Bernie's mountain dog. Is my car. <laughs> some of you, uh, some of you know my boss. You know what his car looks like. It's my house. Played a lot of music on that porch, though. That's the important thing, right? It's the only thing that counts. No, okay, now down to business. Down to business. Um, some of the goals uh, that uh, the Spirit put on my heart for this forum, to try to familiarize you with the roots of cultural pluralism, what it's about and what it came from, where it's come from, and how it's on a crash course um, with biblical truth. And to show how cultural pluralism has rapidly influenced religious pluralism. Okay, and um, it's going to be important to look at some definitions there because people talk about different things when they mean religious pluralism. 
The third thing is to try to expose the contradictions in this constant appeal for tolerance, um, a false-placed appeal for tolerance, because it always will be a self-contradictory argument if you take a moment to think about it. Um, and I, I would like to outline, I think, what I feel is a plausible claim uh, for an, an exclusive salvation and why I think it's meaningful that God could have created the world in such a way that some people will be saved and other people will not. And um, I'd like to lay out at least a little bit how I think one way that that argument can work. There's some more subtle things that I'd hope to accomplish. I, I hope that you're going to recognize from this talk some of the weaknesses in the present talk that's out there. Um, that isn't usually the case. When people are coming us with things, it appears to us that they have the upper hand, right? And we're the ones that may choose to defend or choose to walk away, but we feel intimidated. They're the ones that kind of have us over a barrel. And it takes uh, some time to think through things and to really listen to what people are saying to realize that there, there really are deep weaknesses in their own points of view. So it's not an inferior, superior discussion. It's something like equals that are talking with each other about what could be. Um, I'd like to encourage plausible Christian responses. I want to underscore this word plausible. Our goal when we're out there interacting with people is not to put one over on them. Right? It's not to be able to get so great at our rhetoric and our ability to debate with them that, that we can beat them hands down. Um, I think that the goal that we should have is to be able to provide a plausible argument, okay? Something that can simply be respected for consideration. That really should be what our goal is. And um, last, I hope you're going to see from this that engaging in these kinds of discussions with people about our culture is what I would regard as pre-evangelism. It's not yet being able to talk about the central truths of the Bible, but it's paving a way to be able to potentially talk about these things. And as such, this is really important. That unless that we're going to understand how pre-evangelism works in the way we interact with people, we're likely never going to be able to get to genuine um, evangelistic discussions with them. So this is all part and parcel, I think, of the skills that we need to have and become somewhat comfortable with. A few things that I wanted you to note, that the topic that we have today about why only one way and exclusive claims of Christianity is just part of you know, a much larger theme of apologetics, which is being to be able to provide a plausible defense for Christian views plausible articulation of Christian views. We've picked just one small part of this right now. Last year, um, I was asked to do for the, uh, for the older teens a presentation called uh, Presenting a Strong Case for Christianity. You might be interested in looking at that and the slides from last year that is a little bit broader view than what, um, what we're going to talk about today. But I should say that what this means to me is this is at least the, the third or the fourth or maybe even the fifth forum 
over maybe 10 years that we're looking at these kinds of topics. And what this tells me is, is that people are thinking about these things. People feel that there's a need to be able to get either better at this or a need to be able to get more comfortable in learning how to reach certain kinds of people who think in totally different ways from the way we think. So that's why I, I had mentioned that this is maybe part of a series. At, at universities, some universities at least, have um, a series of Christian activities that they call veritas forums. Veritas means truth in Latin. Um, and there are ways in university settings that be able to show people how Christian arguments should be valid in the culture. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that, that I really feel a handicap by is that a 45-minute talk tends to um, give a sugar-coated response to some of these questions. And people walk away thinking that there really are not that deep answers. And that really is not the case. There are very deep Christian answers that can be given, but unfortunately not something that you can deal with very well in a 45-minute forum. So I would be more than happy to have offline discussions with people about this. And I um, want to emphasize again this, uh, I think it's a Christian directive, uh, a biblical directive, about providing plausible, just plausible answers to the questions that people have. Um, <clears throat> On purpose, there are not going to be a lot of scriptures in this talk because I think that the only thing that the scriptures really help us in is getting our mindset right in the way we should approach people. But once we get into discussions about pluralism and postmodernism, your Bible, unfortunately, is not going to be a big help in terms of being able to quote people chapter and verse because that's not where they're at. Okay, but this scripture is very important um, that I... Uh, wanted to be able to look at here in Ephesians chapter 4, 14, and 15. I don't know, uh, I, I think that most people know part of this verse, but I'm not sure that the whole verse has uh, stuck out to them. The Apostle Paul wrote that, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, okay, this is the cunning part of the false arguments that they're using that the Bible refers to as slight of men, whereby they lie in wait to deceive us. But speaking the truth in love, you may grow up into him in all things, which is the head. And the thing that I want to uh, focus your attention on is that in being able to simultaneously present the truth and God's love in a balanced way is something that God wants us to be able to grow in. And the Bible even suggests that when one is mature, one has a better ability to express truth and love at the same time, suggesting that when we're immature, we're probably not going to be doing such a good job at setting the balance right. It is a worthwhile effort to learn how to present truthful things well-balanced with love, because the Bible says that in doing so, we are growing in him, in the way he would have us be. Okay, some of the roots of pluralism. Some of the current rhetoric. Have you heard things like this? You know, Christianity is too narrow. There are so many religions that we can't know, if any, which ones are right. 
And truth changes from person to person anyhow. What's true for you is fine, but that doesn't mean that it's true for me. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in your beliefs, okay? This idea that the content of the belief doesn't matter, it's more so the emotions of how you believe it that matters. I, I want to mention too, if there are any questions, because I'm sure I'm going to leave things undone uh, in the forum, I know that, but I would ask you to maybe hold them until the end because we, we might hit on them. And uh, uh, I think that would just be a um, more proper way of doing it. You know, sometimes you ask yourself, what is going on around here? I saw this change in having been at the university 20 years ago and going back now the past several years, that we really live in strange times. 20 years ago, Christianity was under fire because it was thought to be unscientific. And it was consequently untrue because it was unscientific. Now, though, there really is quite a big change. That today, Christianity is widely rejected, not because it was critically examined and found to be wanting, but merely because it claims to be true. It claims to be true. And without getting into the details of the claims, Christian thinking is rejected because of that one thing that claims to be absolutely true. And somehow that violates the thinking of so many people in our culture that right then and there, um, you are on a slippery slope. The thinking of the world around us philosophically took a real change with the work of Hegel. There might be some arguments about this, and I don't mean to go there, but Hegel was the first person that presented the ideas of synthesis in thought theory, and I'm going to show you just that in a minute. I just wanted to point out, though, that cultural pluralism is just part of the philosophic thought in the day that we're living in, and cultural pluralism basically reduced to relativism today. That means that there is no standard for truth, all things are relative. Truth usually comes anyhow from social groups. It's a sociological thing. It's not a fundamental thing. You can have a culture that will decide on truths, and that's good for them. But you can look at other cultures that develop totally different truths. And you can't say that one of them is right and one of them is wrong. It just depends on the thinking of the culture. So if you're in one culture, you've got to think one way. But those thoughts are relative, because if you live in another other culture, you're going to think a totally different way, and that's fine. Okay, that's one simplistic way of looking at relativism. Religious pluralism that we see a lot of today, ultimately, to my mind, will lead to universalism. And universalism is a word that basically means, in the end, that everybody is going to be saved. If God is indeed there, and if indeed he made this world where men could be saved, then somehow or other, everybody is going to be saved in the end. Okay. Um, it's coming. It's coming, okay? Um, the thing that I wanted you to get from that slide was not the details of it, but just the big picture idea. The cultural pluralism is part of the philosophic thought. Religious pluralism is also moving in to the philosophic thought of the day. Okay, 
I want to talk something about um, knowledge theory, okay? And there's a big divide right over here with the way people used to think before Hegel and the way people think now. And I just wanted to use a, a simple way here to explain these ideas. Um, sorry that it's somewhat mathematical, but that's my bias. So, um, okay, the one way is to think about things with thesis and antithesis. Claims and the opposite of claims that go like this. If A equals B, if one thing equals another, the, therefore the logical consequence from that is that the opposite of A, or not A, should be the opposite of B. That's one true thing you can say. Or you can say that A is not equal to B if A does equal B. So if they equal each other, then A can equal the opposite of B. Okay? Or likewise, um, the opposite of A can equal B. These are just you know, logical steps starting from a main idea that A equals B. And thesis, antithesis. Thesis, antithesis. Okay? And this thinking results usually in either or in either or kind of thought, okay? Hegel introduced a different idea of synthesis where he said even though um, A doesn't equal B, nevertheless A can be true and B can also be true. So well, well wait a minute here, I mean if they can't equal each other how can you have one thing be true and the other thing be true? we would say, well, that's wrong logic. Hegel would say, no, 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 that's not wrong logic. That's just because that's the way you think. You used to think that this was a, a consequential statement from it, but I'm saying, no. Why do we always have to think in thesis and antithesis? Why can't we take things that are mutually exclusive of each other and put them together and reach a higher truth from combining things? Okay. And this is the idea of synthesis, and this is very, very common in our thought form today. Have you ever heard things, you know, like, always lead to Rome? There's not just one way. You can go many ways and wind up at the same place. The Christian, of course, would say, no, you can't go many ways. Unfortunately, you know, the way is narrow, and there's only one way through Jesus Christ that one can ultimately get to heaven. Well, we know that other people view this differently. Okay, I want to say something about how our culture interprets truth claims. They think that if we're going to make a truth claim, that we're dogmatic or dogmatists. They are immediately going to think that we're totalizers. That's another way of saying that we're absolutist. Okay? They're going to claim that these things are just used as propaganda, sort of cultural propaganda, excuse me, for one ultimate goal, that it's a tool to legitimate power. They think that if we can control the way people think, that ultimately is going to result in power. And so somebody with absolutist views just wants to use that in a way to gain the upper hand or gain power. You know, the thing is that we have to realize when we were honest with ourselves, is that that might be true. That might have been true. That there were before all kinds of absolutist, at times biblical arguments that were used in a culture that were used 
to somehow gain power in the end or get one over on somebody. We have to live in some ways, I guess, with um, some of the misconceptions or errors of the past that the goal was not to gain power, but unfortunately, that is the way that was sometimes used. So we have to live with that legacy. That's just some of the baggage that we have to a certain extent that we have to live with. Okay, now we're going to look at some of the ideas of, of pluralism, and I'm going to um, answer the question that was asked already. You know, what does religious pluralism mean? Okay, it used to mean something, and now it means something else. Okay, and this is one of the ways that we've been duped. Okay, the, the current belief in religious pluralism is used to say that every belief is ultimately true. And that one may be better than others, but all are adequate. That is the current definition of the way people use pluralism. Okay? That's not always the way that people have used pluralism, but that is the current one that people use. And we can sometimes be confused with that. We'll straighten that out a little bit in a minute. Relativism claims that there are no criteria by which one can tell which religion is true or best. There is no objective truth in religion, and each religion is true only to the one holding it. Okay, this is another idea that actually a lot of nominal Christendom holds. It's called exclusivism. And that's the claim that one religion is explicitly true while all others are implicitly true. In other words, you still turn out with everyone being saved in the end. One might be the right articulation, but the others are just a variation on a theme and they all work out anyhow. And you, were, you wind up in the end with universalism of everybody being saved. Okay? The other one is, is the more orthodox Christian position that's called exclusivism. And this is the belief that only one religion is true and that the others that are opposed to it are false. Okay, you can see just by this statement, right, that we're talking in thesis antithesis. Okay, you can see perhaps in these other statements, you know, the ideas of synthesis, of putting multiple things together, even though they make mutually exclusive claims and they're still both right. Okay, who changed the street signs? Okay, because religious pluralism used to mean at one point a tolerance for individual beliefs. This, I believe, every Christian should have. There should be a tolerance for other people's personal beliefs. When I say that, I mean that you have to love the other person regardless of what they believe. That's what I mean by tolerate in this sense, right? that we have to be accepting that this person has a different view than I do, and there's not going to be much you can do to change that, and then you're left with, are you going to avoid this person, are you going to disdain or hate this person, or are you going to find some way to still identify with this person, even though their beliefs are very different from yours? That's what religious pluralism used to mean. Now, okay, we have this stated a different way, where... Again, this is the same thing, but stated a different way. It's the theory that there are more than one or more than two kinds of ultimate reality or truth. And that therefore, more than one religion could be said to have truth. Way to God, salvation, etc. 
even if their essential doctrines are mutually exclusive. Okay, and I want to look at a few of these now. Okay, on the left here are some of the exclusive claims of Christianity. Christ is God. I want to make this point that if people are hung up with the fact that Christianity claims to be true and absolutist, and that's the thing that should bother them, I think that we should actually should point out to them that that's not the thing that should bother them. The thing that should bother them about Christianity is that Christ claimed to be God. He wasn't God's prophet. He wasn't God's messenger. He wasn't anything else. Jesus Christ claimed to be God. If there's something they should object to, that ought to be the thing that they object to. Christianity claims a narrow way or an exclusive, exclusivism as to the way one ultimately gets saved. It says that man is limited, but it also says that man is special in creation. And the Bible teaches us, of course, that man suffers from sin. Now, there's somewhat of a one-to-one correlation for each of these things as I go down. You know, Christianity teaches Christ was God. Other religions teach everything is God. As an example, Hinduism. Other ideas teach that there are many ways that one can be saved, if one can indeed be saved, like pluralism. They teach that, no, man is limitless in what man can do. And our culture and society is moving onwards and upwards and better and better. It's the humanist point of view. Okay? Instead of saying man is special, they would just say, well, man is complicated in the evolutionary process. But ultimately, there's nothing fundamental that separates man from the rest of the natural world. And of course, even though a Christian would claim that man suffers from sin, uh, some in the social science would claim that, you know, that man is merely a victim of, of his own neurosis. It's not something fundamental like sin that has him down. It's just things that are banging around in his own head that you know, probably could be dealt, out, dealt with in the end, or for most people can deal with them, but it's not a fundamental condition. Okay? These are mutually exclusive claims, and I suggest that there's no way that most of these things are going to be able to be reconciled with each other. Okay, I want to ask a question about the tolerance issue. Is tolerance really tolerant? Okay, and what I'm asking when I say that is, is that I want to show you that tolerance arguments will always self-destruct. You can't get around it. They will always self-destruct. Okay? So it starts out with a claim that, well, you're intolerant of somebody else's belief. And that leaves you with an impression that there's a higher value that you should have that you're not have, that you don't have. And you ought to be quiet because you don't have that higher value. Okay? But what that really is, is it's really a truth claim. It's really saying that tolerance is better than non-tolerance. It's really saying that tolerance is true and non-tolerance is false. It's hidden, but that is really what is being implied when somebody says, well, we need to be tolerant of other ideas, meaning you can't push your idea, or you can't hold to all your ideas, or you should not criticize other ideas because you're not being tolerant. Okay? 
it will ultimately in the end lead in making a judgment. A tolerance argument will always lead in making a judgment when it makes a claim. And in the end, I suggest that it sets a double standard. All that it means is, is that in this case, you're raising tolerance to defend your point of view, but you're saying, I can't have a point of view. If you really believed in tolerance, you ought to be happy that I'm also expressing my point of view and just leave it, that all the views were expressed. But that's not the way it works. And I want to I drop in here quickly on um, a conversation that I, I lifted off of a website. Um, this is a, um, uh, what, what's the word here? A, um, no, a transcription. This is a transcription of a conversation that happened on a radio station out in California someplace. And I want to get straight who is who here. Lee is the guy that's calling in. Okay? Greg is the guy that's the host of the radio program. And I just want you to follow what happens here in this discussion. So Lee calls up and says, as far as the last caller is concerned, if you're a good Christian, and I'm a, I'm a Jew, okay? Um, but I know how Christians think. You're going to love everyone, whether they're homosexual or not. And Greg says, well, that's not the question here, but I agree that that's the goal of Christianity, or one of them, anyhow. Then Lee says, okay, um, <clears throat> if you don't, you're going to contribute uh, to, you know, gay bashing. Okay, I'm not homosexual, okay, but I think that it's wrong to condemn anybody for anything. And Greg asks, well, why, why are you condemning me then? And Lee says, what? Well, I said, why are you condemning me if you think it's wrong? Well, I'm telling you because a lot of Christians condemn people. Well, you're condemning me because I just condemned homosexuals as wrong. Well, yes, I am. Well, you're supposed to love everybody. Well, wait a minute. You just said that it's wrong to condemn people, and now you're condemning me. So I'm asking, why are you doing what you say is wrong? Well, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not okay. Put it this way. You know, I'm not condemning you. I'm reprimanding you, okay? Is that better? <laughs> well, then my comments about homosexuals were simple reprimands uh, <laughs> as, as well, okay? And this is interesting now. Lee leaves the topic and says, well, you know, I want to lead into the main subject about what we were talking about, okay? And he uh, sneaks on to some... Okay, I thought this was actually a beautiful example of how tolerance arguments will always self-destruct. They will always self-destruct. And I'm sure any, this would dawn on anybody if you sit down and think about it for a minute, but usually we're, we're not ready. We're not ready for them to come our way, and we don't realize that it, it's a self-refuting argument if you look at it, okay? Real pluralism would say that everybody has the right to express their views, and you're going to withhold judgment on anybody's view, but anybody can express them, okay? That would be pluralism. Uh, to be honest, that's a little bit of what the Founding Fathers kind of wrote into the way things ought to work, that everybody should have their say, you have an opinion at the end, but everybody should have their say. We live in an age now where there is a strong propensity to suggest that the Christian way of thought actually shouldn't have a say. Shouldn't have a say. And I'm not just talking about 
um, political dialogue because I actually don't, don't want to go there. Okay, this is not about donkeys and elephants. Okay, this is this is about um, the cultural um, society's dialogue. Now, I also want to point out to you that tolerance is something that is really hypocritical sometimes that are out there. Uh, I, I lifted this, I, I read this uh, a couple months ago and went looking for it again. Gerard Baker is an editorialist for the Times of London and he happened to be writing this uh, before our election here. Okay, so this article was about the election but this snippet that I took out was not about the election. He, just to let you give you context of what was going on, he wrote several paragraphs of saying how he actually disagreed with our current administration. And he was very pointed in the things that he thought that they had botched up. But then he turns around in the end and he said, nevertheless, um, if I had a vote, I, I would vote for Mr. Bush again. And this is not about voting for Mr. Bush. I want to have you look at the criticisms that he makes of the thought of the day. And he says, you know, he's basically saying that those on the left are being totally hypocritical. The, the hordes of bien-pensant left in the universities and the media, you know, the sort of liberals who tolerate everything except for those that disagree with them. These secularist elitists who disdain religiosity except when it comes from Muslim fanatics. Or these Hollywood cyberites and narcissists, self-appointed arbiters of a nation's morals. Okay, I, 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 I want to draw your attention to this thing here, to this bien passant. I, I was, you know, in, in lieu of our Canadian brethren, I was instructed by the advisors to say something in French. So that's, that, 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 that's, that's, that's what that is. That's what that is right there. <clears throat> well, I think he summed it up very well though, right? He summed it up very well. That people can make these tolerance arguments except when you disagree with them, okay? And then uh, 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 things, uh, things somehow change. You know, we look at this situation and, you know, one would ask the question, as this ex-missionary from India did, can the West be converted? I mean, we, we look at this scenario and ask ourselves, is it possible to do, do anything good to be able to bring this culture around to a biblical point of view. Well, I'm going to just outline for you um, um, one way of making an exclusive salvation claim, okay? And some of the elements that I think should be there, I want to point out there's not only one way can do it, one can do this. There are, I think, a lot of valid, plausible ways that one can make this argument. But I just want to lay out an outline for one. And I should mention, too, it's really hard to do this verbally. Okay, I have seen really good arguments that are written in 15 or 20 page documents that go through every nook and cranny of the objections and lay this out, to my mind, very well. Okay, and so this is just a, a very broad outline of some of the things that I think we have to deal with in making a plausible argument. We need to be familiar with what the existing arguments are out there for truth claims. And we have to be familiar about what the objections that people generally have toward Christian truth claims, okay? And once we're familiar with them, you can point out the deficiencies and the problems. Just like I'm sure all of you are going to know now, the tolerance arguments are self-destructive. You're all going to know that, and the next time somebody's going to whip that out at you, 
you're going to remember that if we follow your line of thought, okay, you're going to take us to a place where you don't want to be. I think that we, we have to become familiar with that. We need to re really be able to resolve though, the deficiencies, sometimes valid deficiencies, that other people raise in, in Christian arguments. And you know, I want to make a, a, um, a comment here that this is only going to help us make arguments better. You know how many times this has happened in the course of history that Christianity has made a certain argument for something that was actually shown to be wrong and, and then we didn't lose. There was just a different way of thinking that came about you know, something uh, as simple as a heliocentric universe, right? Well-meaning Christians can find Bible verses that say the sun is the center of the universe, that the earth is the center of the universe and the sun revolves around it. Martin Luther wrote a wonderful paper. He said, in the book of Joshua, it says the sun stood still. That's what the Bible says. So it's obvious that it's the sun that's moving around us and not the earth that's moving. Well, you know what? That turned out to not be right in the end, but that really didn't matter, right? What did that mean? It means that with the addition of information and knowledge, the arguments are going to be a little bit refined and redirected, and ultimately I would say that it's going to serve to our benefit, actually, if we're humble and close listeners to the deficiencies that other people point out in our positions. Okay, one has to be able to present a rational Christian argument. Sometimes um, that takes some effort to be able to do that. I should say, too, there are a lot of irrational arguments out there. So again, that's some of the baggage that we have to deal with. The irrational arguments get out there, that's what people are familiar with, and we have to kind of work against those. Okay, so how could the argument work? I think that the first thing that one has to do is to deal with this issue of religious diversity, pluralism, and truth. Okay, I mean, you have to be able to point out that the synthesis way that people are thinking is somewhat of a new way, and there's, there's no reason to believe that synthesis is a better way of thinking about things than thesis antithesis. It's newer and it's different, but there's no reason to think that one way should be better than another. So you're, you're, you know, you're telling people, look, I'm arguing from a certain point of view, and I think there's a lot of credibility why I should be able to argue from that point of view. There should be no reason why I hang my head in shame um, in arguing from a thesis antithesis point of view. Okay, in the end, when Christianity makes an exclusive claim, you're going to have to be prepared to deal with the character of God, who in the end will exclude people from the kingdom. Okay, that is one of the things that people are going to come after. What, after all, is the character of this God that you say you believe? Okay, and they will say things like two mutually exclusive claims here or that they feel are consistent. You know, if God is indeed all-powerful, so why wouldn't he have organized this that all can hear and freely be saved if indeed he was all-powerful? And then a correlate to that, if he was all-loving, wouldn't he prefer a world where all would be saved? You know, these are the kind of objections that people are going to raise. And you know what? Those are not unfair objections. Those are very fair objections. Those are very, very honest questions. Okay, and ultimately you realize that what these questions will lead to is universalism in the end. Well, um, I can't go into the arguments here in detail, but they're really good arguments to show, you know, that what, what does freely really mean? If you imagined a world where God was going to force people to believe, and then they could all be saved because God was imposing that on them, 
is that really a free world? I mean, just imagine for a moment what that world would be like. Okay, and people that are good at arguing these things have this ability to get into the other person's world and go through the natural consequences of what they're arguing and, and ask, is that, is that really where you want to go? Would that be a free world where the script was written before time and history happened and it was just going to be played out? I think that a very plausible argument is why could not God have created a world that had some sort of an optimal balance between the lost and the saved? Not according to our rules, but to God's view of some kind of balance between the lost and the saved. Well, people would say there actually isn't balance because what about the people that have never heard the gospel? And what about people that had they have heard would have believed? You know, all of these kinds of hypothetical questions are raised. And, um, you know, are there those who are lost because they didn't hear? But they would have been saved if they would have heard. You know, and well, so we have to provide a rational basis for the evangelism. And we have to say to ourselves, do we really know that such a person lives? I mean, why couldn't it be that God knew those who would need an extra push to respond, where there are no, those, like the first chapter of Romans says, that just respond to God's creation. And that alone is the information or conviction to cause them to believe. But, you know, the other people who needed a little bit more, God actually created the world in such a way that they had the opportunity to hear it again through some other means. One will also you know, raise the question and say, well, you know, this sort of gets into the predestination thing, right, about why bother evangelizing and so on. Well, no, there actually is a reason for doing that because you know, God still wants to have some people be able to hear who those people are and who they aren't. We can't control. But there's a reason why we should walk down this road. Now, I'm going to say something at the same time here with this, that... Um, there are elements of this, there are elements in this argument that sound a little bit like predestination. They sound like, I don't think that it is in the end. I don't think that it is in the end. But, you know, we, we do have to ask ourselves this question, okay, of all the people that lived, are living, and will live, um, we can't really answer or know for sure how God is working this out, but why can't we provide plausible reasons how he could potentially have done, with it, done it? And if we run into problems, then we need to pray and think harder. But, you know, we simply need to be able to write a plausible way. Why could not God have created a world where there is some sort of a balance between those who would have been lost? And in doing so, he really gives men free choice, free will. And they act as their own moral agent, but not something that was scripted on top of them. There's always this question to be pointed out to as the positive argument where is the meaning in life ultimately at the end of postmodernism? Where is the meaning of it? And I think we can rationally show that at the end of Christian exclusivism is genuine meaning in life. We should tell people that they should grow, they should develop emotionally, intellectually, every which way, and they should rise to the challenge of engaging God. And in doing that, they will find meaning in life. 
much more meaning than they could have found in some other place if they think that they have found meaning there. You know, sometimes we want, we'd prefer to stop people from asking the questions, and I have a little bit the other bias the other way. There is a very fine line between belief and unbelief in my book. A very fine line between belief and unbelief. There's a fine line between faith and no faith. And we as believers know that also, that you know what, we can have a lot of faith in life and one thing happens in life, and all that faith that we had gets put to question. So there can be a fine line between the two. We look at it the negative way, but you gotta look at it the other way. Keep on asking, keep on questioning, keep on wrestling with these things. And one day, Jesus can reveal himself to that person. And suddenly, what was a mishmash can all come together and make sense. So, in the end, I'd say that a powerful and loving God can still create a world where Christ is the way and the truth and the life. That's the meaning part in the end, the life. And there's no real reason other than our own learning curve in being able to dialogue with people and love them and talk with them and don't be ashamed and don't bow down to the challenges that they ask you. It's fine to say that, you know what, that is a great question that you're asking and just give me some time to think about that one and pray about that one and, and, and then have the love to really get back to them at some point in time and say, you know what, it's saying I take you serious as a person. And we left this conversation the last time, and I, I, I didn't stop there. I'm thinking about this because I want to be able to provide uh, uh, a response to you about what you're thinking that, that I believe is fair and honest. Opportunities for pre-evangelism. You know, these are the worst of times, but they're also the best of times. And I, I really believe that they are. I believe that the fields now are really white into harvest. We should not feign from these kinds of questions being asked. I, I really think that we need to uh, step up the pace and be more interested in responding to them. I'm not really interested in the political part of things, but you know, we all have editorial pages in our newspaper and stuff like that. That's where the culture war is being fought. And you know, if you read something in there that you feel that you make a contribution to, by all means, you know, try to write something and contribute. Um, it's, it's probably gonna be published in some way, shape, or form. Uh, it might fall on deaf ears, but maybe not. And I think that's something that we need to be prepared to do. There are abundant opportunities to engage in this because you know what? Tolerance arguments are gonna be raised time and time and time again for the foreseeable future. Every one of these is an opportunity to try to engage people in. But it's gonna require some growth on our part in order to learn how to make the plausible arguments and in the end, you know what? Learn really how to be able to love people and learn to feel comfortable with not being powerful. Comfortable with just meeting them on something like equal terms, and that that should be enough. I want to ask you something for a moment. What, will be the, what would be the alternative if these kinds of questions would not be asked? What would be the alternative? We could have a society where people would reject Christian thinking and just not care. It would be irrelevant. They wouldn't bother talking about it. They wouldn't raise tolerance arguments. They wouldn't do anything. They would just ignore it. Just ignore it. And in that case, we wouldn't even have the point of entry to talk with them about anything because they'll just pay you no mind. Well, that's not the situation that we live in right now. I actually think that 
that this actually could be the best of times if these kinds of questions are still being asked of us. Okay, and I want to ask you this, are things really harder? You know, I mean, I started out by saying, gosh, you know, 20 years ago was it, but now, you know, they, are things really harder than it was in times past? You know, what was it like when in the Old Testament there were exclusive claims, you know? You should love the Lord your God, and I'm the only God, and you should make no graven images before me. People in times past wrestled with the same kinds of things in making exclusive claims to surrounding cultures that didn't want to accept those claims. You know, remember, what was it like defending truth claims amongst other Bible believers? Having discussions with Catholics or other people that had some kind of Christian belief you held the same truth claims, but you're debating points in the Bible. And that, that, that's, it's tough doing that too, right? It's, it's tough doing that back and forth when people read scriptures and they read them totally different than you did. And, and you're trying to work, work your way through that. Was that so easy? I don't think so. I think that was pretty tough. You know, what about what it's like making truth claims from people in other thought systems, not postmodernists? But, you know... Have you ever tried speaking with somebody from Islam about Christianity? You know, shortly after 9-11, we had a group of uh, students come over our house. They came over with their Koran, and they were ready for action. They knew exactly what the Apostle Paul said, and, but, but, you know, uh, back and forth with what they were doing, you know? A friendly discussion in the end, but was it tough? I, I was pretty tired at the end of that, and I tell you why. Um, no, it, it wasn't easy. And so I, is this really harder? I, I, I don't think that it is. I think it's just different. And because that's different, there's some additional learning that might need to be due in order to be able to respond to it. But I think in the end, um, it, it's, it's, it's the best of times along with the worst of times. And it's just a matter of, of uh, how we choose to look at what God is bringing our way. No, it's, it's, it's not the worst of times. It just takes a little effort, time, and practice. We'll be there. Okay, what has changed, though? There are fringe groups in our societies that are vying for power. Okay, that is going on around us. And that's why this whole topic of politically incorrect is there, right? It's largely because of fringe groups that all have ideas and nobody wants anything bad to be said about them. And I think there is an effort to silence Christian voices. I sense that. And um, I, I think that we should, we should try to not let that happen. I don't think that we should fight about it, but I think that we should... Try to not let that happen. That's not saying that I believe in some sort of activism along these lines because I'm somewhat unsure about that. But um, I don't think it would be good if we would just allow to be browbeaten so that there, there would be no voice there. I don't think that we should have particular power in what we say, but we should have the forum to be, be able to say it and let it be weighed in the world of ideas. There is a concerted effort to intimidate Christians. And sometimes we play along with this, actually, because it's, it's tough to do the homework we need to do. And the university demographics are very different. You know, really, for the past 50 years, there has been an outflux of conservative thinkers from the university, and they've abandoned these positions to more liberal persuaded individuals. And I think it was a mistake. There was a time in this country where almost all universities had Christian moorings to them, religious moorings. And now most of them have been lost. You know why? The thinking was, when the first liberal came on faculty, some people said, well, I'm not going to get my hands dirty. Look at this. They're letting this guy on here? No, no, no. I'm, I'm turning the other way. I'm doing something else. 
And with this, a little bit of that kind of arrogance, positions were being dismissed one by one, and they, we have position right now in our society where most of these positions are, are held by philosophic liberals at least. And few Christians are engaged in apologetics, but some are, and I think doing a pretty good job at it if we see what's there. Um, I have just one last question in closing about Christianity and culture. What is your view on how Christianity should respond to culture? Um, there are a few different ways that we can look at this. One is that, that the Christians should be against culture. Okay, We should be opposed to it, and there needs to be some kind of separation there. And because it's bad, there should actually be some sort of hostility there also. Okay, One could have the view that um, Christ is of a culture, which means that we should find a way to unite Christianity and culture regardless of differences. Some people hold this view. Another view is Christ above culture. So we should correlate the questions of the culture with the answers of Christianity and say to ourselves, all knowledge is ultimately God's knowledge. All learning is ultimately God's learning. We don't have to worry about where the questions come from and what, what the objections are. That God is ultimately sovereign over all of these things. There's a view that Christ and culture should be in paradox. Okay? And the Christian should live in tension between two dual worlds. Or not be, can't be citizens of dual worlds. I think the fifth option is the Christ, uh, the transformer of culture, to try to convert the values and goals of a secular culture into the service of the kingdom of God. Um, when I look at all of these choices here, you know what my honest answer is? Um, I'm a pluralist. I've got to face the fact that I like parts of each of those on certain occasions. Okay, there's a test. Ding, 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 this is the test. Is there a problem with that? If I have a pluralistic point of view in regards to these things that I might like bits of pieces of all of them but won't subscribe to any one. Is there a problem with that? Pardon? Not to a pluralist. Tom? I think you're, let me just articulate that in a different way. I'm being pluralistic, but I'm not making truth claims. In picking between each of these things, that's not making truth claims. That's trying just to decide on what ways we interact with culture, and we should have an open discussion about that. And you know, situation is complicated in life, and it's broad, and there's a lot of different things. There are times where we actually might choose to have to separate ourselves for certain reasons and things to come. Okay, but it was a trick question because I'm not making truth claims. And that's part of refining what we're thinking here. Pluralism really has to do with truth claims. It, not has to do, it doesn't have to do with getting bits and pieces of different potential. Uh, I think this might be the last slide anyhow because I saw some hands that were up. It, it, this is the last slide. You know, I want to ask you, is God calling you in your way in some way, shape, or form you know, to engage the culture? And uh, what way is that? Um, 
there were some questions, hands that were up over here. Maybe we can just use that right now to get some of those responses. Judy? The reason that there's nothing wrong with picking and choosing what you wanted of that last list that you showed is because culture is neither totally wrong nor totally right. And culture is not a claim to truth. Culture is just the way people do things. Christ is always right and always true. And therefore, we need to pick the elements out of culture that conform to Christ's will and to Christ's bidding and say those things are good and those things we should embrace and we should promote. And the things that are against Christ, we should object to and we should separate ourselves from and we should speak out against. But we can't say culture is good or bad or above or below or anything because it's not an ism. I think the Apostle Paul knew the value of that when he stood on Mars Hill and he said, I perceive the folks are too superstitious. And here's one I want to talk about. He actually tried to find a place, a basis upon which he could talk to that culture. All right, thank you for those comments. Some of the comments. Or uh, questions. Scott. Deal specifically with the idea of uh, Christ being the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. How, what is your, I don't want to say justification for that, but how do you deal with that issue? Obviously, that's not the place where you start, but that's oftentimes where at least I end up. Hey, um. I mean, my, my thought on that is that, you know, if God created a world where some people could be saved and one people could be lost, and the way of salvation was the salvific event of Jesus Christ, why couldn't God have created that way that salvation could be found through a person that was his son that he was sent on earth to bear that message? I mean, I would say, why, I mean, philosophically, I would say, why not? Why should there be particular objection to salvation coming through a person. And then one could, I mean, obviously turn that around on the biblical side and say, well, look, there are all these reasons why we should believe that this is a good way to be able to do this. Because look at what belief in Christ can do for a life. Look how it can realign a life. Look how it can deal with uh, supposedly people's neurosis. It's really sin. Look at how it has ways of fundamentally changing life. I, I, I'm not sure, Dave, if, I'm, if I really answered your question or if, that, if I... Well, what you, what you did just there was regarding sort of the utilitarian argument for how it affects people when are here and now. And that's sort of what I want to use in life. And, and the other is, I also argue that I'm not sure we have all the information answer all of the philosophical questions having to infinity. I think God has given us a window and given us some instruction. But I wouldn't assume that that's exhausting. And so to, to argue with people about things that may be beyond information we've been given might be happening. What would you think that um, no, I, I I agree with that. But there 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 are times, too, where we actually can give multiple plausible answers and we, we can't, we can't uh, explain any one of them, but they could all be plausible. 
And I would give as an example to that when, when evolution is being objected to, there are several different ways that we could propose the way God brought this about that to my view all of them are biblical. And we can't choose which one of those God used, but there's a body of several different scenarios that he could have done in order to bring about this world for us. So we shouldn't be forced to choose. I think, again, all that we have to do is to be able to give a plausible answer. Now, what happens if there's only one answer that's plausible and then that ultimately the end is refuted? What happens then? Well, that happened to Martin Luther, right? That, 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 that happened to Martin Luther. And, you know, when, when God uh, goes along with the same scripture verse that says he's not going to lead us into any temptation above we are able, he will also not bring the circumstances of earth if something happens like that to not open another door, just like there was a window in the ark to be able to look up. I mean, that, that is what, what I would believe. But Bob, you had a comment? It's not in our power to convince them that if we can pique their interest in God enough that they challenge God with those things, he'll prove it to them. He will convert them, not us. The other, suppose there was an argument that would totally destroy some plausible argument that we have, and for 10 years we didn't have a response to it. I would say, what, what's, what's 10 years? I mean, you know... Um, sometimes things happen that we, we are, if we're thinking and caring people, we should be given time to reach conclusions and try to be able to work things out. There's not a panic if suddenly something has worked out. Uh, uh, the, the Lord has, has created this earth with a lot of years behind it, and who knows how many uh, ahead of us. It should not be a panic situation. If anything, it seems to me that it would just be uh, a yearning uh, for an answer similar to the way Israel yearned for a savior when it came, and it ultimately came. Sorry? You know, like Brother uh, uh, Bob said, uh, if you can only ignite an interest in them to seek and, and to think about God, not that their arguments are exactly exhaustive or complete either. I don't have to defend my position as a Christian against something that's absolute and proper from the point of view. I mean, they have, if they think I have holes in my beliefs, they have a sieve in there, you know? and so I mean, there are, there are so many incomplete, inappropriate, illogical arguments that you can argue with them that at least give my belief system a chance and think about them. Like he said, God will do the rest. Thank you. Come on here. Yeah. I think each kid um, has the opportunity to be led to engage in some apologetics with both uh, Mormons at length and Islam. And both those religions have a, a lot of truth of similarities in uh, valid arguments, a lot of biblical truths, and as far as morals go, they're, they're right in concordance with Christian morals, and then uh, it comes down to a point of orthodoxy, which is very, very hard to, to argue with anybody, but what I found, that if you bring things back in any, in any uh, apologetics, in any argument, if you bring things back to the condition of the human condition, the sin nature, the problem that none of these people are even aware of, or none of their, their uh, Religions even deal with their religions are religions of dead work. They're just trying to appease a, some sort of capricious deity. And if you can bring it back to the sin nature, which definitely can be proven, that's an absolute truth. You can use historical examples. You can use a number of literary allusions. Almost anything can, can, uh, can prove that. Then you can build from there. And then you can get them to see how their religions address the sin nature. And that the inadequacy, inadequacy will be brought out right away. And then what I found in my personal experience, then you can begin to make them receptive to the gospel and the message of Christ. 
and then, then the groundwork's already built. But if you don't bring the sin nature into it, it's very, very difficult because it comes down to an argument of moralities or they'll, they'll bring very valid arguments that are very similar to biblical. It's almost so similar, it's astonishing. They actually appeal to the sin nature in their doctrine. I'd like to say I completely agree with that. Thank you for those comments. Anything else? Thanks very much. I'll, I'll give the outline also to the CD people so the, the presentation will also be on there.